Francis is still the gold standard of people that have come through that door. She's 105 now, and she still works. And there's a poem by George Bernard Shaw called The Splendid Torch. And there's a line in there where it's something like, use me up, because life is not a brief candle, it's a splendid torch. And like, we have these journeys. And so that has profoundly, profoundly influenced me. Hi there, this is David Knorr. Welcome to the third season of the Curvebenders podcast. I'm so excited after years of research and interviews and due diligence on this topic to finally be able to publish Curvebenders this year. It'll be my 11th book as a follow-on to Relationship Economics and Co-Create. Curvebenders, in essence, are your strategic relationships that enable your non-linear growth in the future. Our research points to 15 forces that we believe will dramatically impact the future of how you'll work, how you'll live, how you'll play, and how you'll give. The global pandemic is just one example. So how will you remain relevant if more disruption will come at us more often with potentially far greater impact? In each episode, I want to share with you insights, great ideas from guests I've invited to join us, as well as practical ideas in the evolution of your skills, your knowledge, your behaviors, and most importantly, what I believe is your biggest asset, which is your portfolio of relationships. I call those relationships your curve benders. So let's get started. Hi, everybody. Noor here. Just a quick heads up that we're constantly updating our new website, norgroup.com, with new blog posts, podcast episodes like this one, links to my Forbes and Inc. articles, and a new intimate community called the Noor Forum. It's a place where like-minded professionals are gathering to learn, share, and grow through insights about strategic relationships, visual storytelling, and nonlinear growth. This is also where you find articles, poll questions, and some great discussions. For example, earlier today, there is an article on how to be more productive in the post-pandemic world. I am hosting a longtime friend, Diane Ryan, a retired Army colonel and a leadership development expert at West Point on an upcoming podcast and live stream. There are interesting folks sharing uh, really gender equality questions and challenges. There is, I shared a unique insights about the Persian New Year. So a lot of great content where companies go wrong with learning and development. Here's a poll question on how are you thinking about planning for or leading differently in your business or role in the post-COVID world. So we're up to about a thousand folks, all professionals, all from all around the world, really talking a lot about their relationship challenges and opportunities, how do we effectively communicate, how do we really learn more, learn it faster, and apply those to solve challenges and opportunities. So I hope you come join us at norgroup.com slash forum. That's N-O-U-R group.com slash forum. Welcome back to another episode of the Curvebenders podcast. My guest today is a dear friend. We've only known each other for a few years, but I've actually gone and seen her in, I want to give you a glimpse into the caliber of the relationship. I'm pretty sure it was a bazillion degrees 
below zero. Okay. I went and saw Diane Ryan at Tufts University. Hello, Diane. Hi, David. How are you? I'm great. Thanks. It's good to be with you. For those that may not know as much about you, Associate Dean for Programs and Administration at Tisch College. Talk a little about where you've been. You've got a an incredibly decorated background. Talk about where you've been and what you've done, how you've arrived here. Yeah, so it was this really unusual and unplanned journey where a little over 30 years ago, I was a freshman in college in a really expensive college, and I wasn't sure how I was going to pay for that. And someone suggested, oh, you should check out Army ROTC. They're giving out scholarships. So I moseyed over there and decided, hey, this would be a really efficient way for me to pay for my college and maybe I'll get some job skills here. So I thought I would do it and probably join the reserves and work a corporate job. And something in my senior year led me to think about possibly going active duty and the potential to travel. And again, I thought I was just going to sign up, do my four years and skedaddle and, and go into corporate America. And I, something happened to me while I was on that first assignment in Europe. And I just fell in love with the people and the sort of adventure and the learning opportunities. So I made a deal with myself that I'd stick around in the army for as long as it was fun and I could continue to learn new things. And I didn't know if that would be another four years or if that would be 10 years. And it turned out to be 29 years. And I was in Iraq at about 15 year point and thinking about what's beyond the horizon. Most people do a 20 year career and retire and then and then do a second career. And I ran into a friend who in Iraq who was at, had been at West Point and asked, had I ever considered teaching there? And it was something that really appealed to me. And prior to that, it just hadn't worked out time-wise. But I started to feel, sitting in the middle of a war zone, this really strong calling to teaching. So I went on a couple interviews, was lucky enough to get selected and be able to stay there for almost 10 years and do a number of different jobs within the time in, in the Department of Behavioral Sciences and Leadership. Picked up a PhD in psychology along the way, which was really satisfying and you know became an army lifer, for lack of a better word. And then a few years before I knew my 30 years was coming up, I realized I better think about what's my next chapter and what am I going to do? So I felt pretty good about higher ed, like that was the place to be. And I started to to look at jobs and three years out, I prepared my resume and like updated my LinkedIn profile, started talking to people about different higher ed opportunities. And then my plan was to only apply to jobs that were what I felt equivalent to the caliber of West Point, you know, top tier universities in highly desirable geographic locations. And then if that didn't work out, I would open up my aperture, maybe focus, you know, another level down or consider a place that I might not be super excited about living in. And I was really lucky because this position at Tufts became open in that second year. And I was fortunate that they picked me. What was the biggest surprise for you at West Point? The biggest surprise at West Point I don't know that it was a surprise per se, because it wasn't that much different from the regular army in the sense that it was all consuming. 
So my people would say, oh, you're going to West Point, like you're taking a knee. That's kind of army speak for taking an easier job. And it was clearly one of the most challenging things I've ever done in my life. And certainly one of the most important. If you think about the legacy, when you, te- when you touch a person in the classroom, they go out into the army. And even if they just lead for five years, you know, each one of them has dozens, hundreds of people that they're influencing. If they stay for a career longer than that, you know, they, you're influencing that person and the people they lead and then the people they lead. So that was really, really satisfying, but it was an all consuming job. Like you get up at 5am, prepare for your day. First classes started at 730 in the morning. You went straight through. Usually after the academic day was over, you would be advising extracurriculars or, you know, participating in other kind of student events. And then I, after dinner every night, I'd be working on my preparing my class for the next day. I'd usually go to bed around 11 or 12 at night and get up the next morning at five and do it all over again. And, you know, our house was constantly full of cadets and, you know, it just, it permeated every aspect of my life and I wouldn't change a thing about it. One of the challenges this pandemic has heightened is the incredible burden on working moms. I've Mm. met your lovely family. You, You must have had small kids while you're doing this. How do you do that? How do you do an all consuming army West Point and have a family? Yeah, that's a really great question. You certainly do it with a lot of help. And I have an amazing partner who we made this decision together. He more or less knew what he was signing up for. And when he would forget on occasion, I would remind him that this is what he signed up for. But the other part is people talk a lot about work-life balance. And I think balance is a ridiculous word. It was really about work-life integration. And the wonderful thing about being at a place like West Point is my two girls were surrounded by the most amazing role models. I was the faculty advisor for the women's basketball team. And I would love to have, they'd come over, they'd eat all my food on the weekends. They'd sleep at my house because it was more comfortable. And we had Netflix and things that they didn't have in the barracks. And when I'd tell my kids something and they wouldn't believe me because, you know, that's how kids are with their parents. I'd just get one of the basketball women to to tell the same thing to my kid. Oh, it's really important that you do this homework or it's really important that you take this opportunity at school. And they ate that up. So I was very strategic about choosing things that I was interested in that I thought I could make an impact with and I could include my kids. I could roll my kids up under that. So, you know, both my girls have been to NCAA tournaments. I've taken them on on bus trips with the team. If I had academic conferences, I'd strategically choose them in cool places like San Francisco or Ireland and, you know, we'd we'd add a week of vacation on top of the conference and, you know, make my family a lot less resentful about me having to be gone or to, to pay attention to other things. And it was a really magical experience for them. And again, I'm really, really appreciative of, of how patient my husband was and what a partner in, in this he was in terms of, you know, taking in all these extra kids that, that he didn't father and being a good role model for them as well. So that particularly the women officers or cadets rather would see this is what it looks like to have a a true partnership when you go out into your career. Like don't settle for somebody who's not going to do that for you if that's what you want to do. 
you uh, again that cream of the crop that caliber that west point is what drew you to tufts what what made this a viable next chapter for you yeah so that's a great question and an interesting story so a few years before i left uh, West Point, I was working with a really prominent researcher at Tufts, uh, Dr. Richard Lerner, who's probably one of the foremost authorities on adolescent character development. And he, ha- through a mutual friend, came to West Point because he thought it would be interesting to study character development of cadets in this you know, very sort of constrained environment. What are the findings from that kind of research that would then be useful to other colleges and universities or other settings where young people are developed in these ways? And so through my relationship with Rich and the work that we did together, we got a five-year multi-million dollar grant from a philanthropic foundation to to do this work, to do this five-year longitudinal study. And then halfway through, it became my time where, you know, I'm going to have to transition and probably leave the academy. And so the Tufts job became available in Tisch College, the Tisch College of Civic Life. And, you know, when you're doing a job search and you sign up for the notifications. And so I get pinged one day like, hey, here's a job that fits the description that you, you might be qualified for. So I read the description. It seemed really, really interesting because it was focused on, you know, civic life and community engagement. I thought maybe I had some of the qualifications and I called up Rich and Rich was like, oh my God, this is the perfect job for you. And I know the Dean really well. I'm send me your resume. I'm walking it over there right this second. So that was, it was through that relationship and, and his advocacy for me that I think really sealed the deal. But what's so interesting about the West Point mission, which is to educate, train, and inspire leaders of character for a lifetime of selfless service, Tufts has kind of a parallel mission of educating people to be active citizens who make a lasting impact in the world. So the the notion of service, in my mind, this was like the next best thing to being at West Point. If I could no longer be on active duty and I could no longer wear a uniform, what could I do in another setting that had the same kind of, you know, mission driven focus on something that I thought was really important. So that, that was really aligning those values up. It was such a, so lucky for me at that particular moment in time. Are there some attributes that you believe were particularly, you know, contributed to your success at West Point or in your military life that have carried over to now your success at Tisch? You know, I like to solve problems. I think that's maybe what is central to my identity is just trying to be helpful to people. And you know how Marshall tells us all the time, it's not about you. I mean, I grew up thinking it wasn't about me. And at, at, when you're in the army, you you get to be part of something bigger than yourself. And so I think having the strong value set made me pretty successful in the army and just like being a good listener and wanting to try to understand people in their as whole people, not just like the soldier aspect of their lives. I was psychology major as an undergrad. And so listening to people was an important part of that and caring. And we, we know that the way to really influence people so they get that, so they are committed 
to things is to have character and to be caring and develop those relationships in addition to being, you know, technically and tactically competent. So I really feel like the the nurturing aspect of my personality was helpful to me as I navigated through the army. And then I was oblivious to, you know, some of the challenges of being an extreme minority in a male dominated environment, right? When I started, I think women comprised only about 15% of the total force. And, you know, in those early days, I went a long time without ever seeing a woman in higher ranking positions who could be role models. In some ways, the oblivion kind of helped me because I just sort of persisted and I didn't necessarily notice when people were intentionally being discriminatory, but I did have a wake up call about halfway through and and things started to dawn on me. And then certainly when I went to graduate school to do my PhD, I worked for a really prominent person who started out in women and gender studies. So I started to, I started to recognize uh, what some of the barriers were and, you know, sort of assist looking through a gendered lens at different systems. And that, you know, further motivated me to be a change maker on the inside when I was at West Point. And I think so that was the bulk of your question, right? Yeah, let's let's talk about that a second. You have daughters, I have a daughter, you know, obviously diversity and inclusion and equity is, you know, fairly prevalent in a lot of our conversations. Diane, I'm after practical, pragmatic, you know, ideas and insights. What can we all do to really create more opportunities? You talked about cadet women's basketball and having them see mm-hmm. you succeed as a successful educator with a family. You know, what else other than, you know, great role modeling? I'd love to hear your insights on what can we do to really bolster diversity, bolster equitable opportunities and be more inclusive in our efforts? I think it's a lot about treating people the way they deserve to be treated. And the thing that comes to mind is I haven't had a single good thing happen to me, in my, certainly in my army career, where someone didn't su- casually suggest and whether they deliberately meant to be harmful with these words or if they just were dumb and didn't know this was a terrible thing to say to somebody. But almost every time I'd get a promotion or I'd get accepted to some school or I'd get a particular role and people would say, oh, yeah, you know that they just really needed to have more women and that's why they picked you. And so it undermined my confidence in my own ability, even if I wasn't always aware of it. Now, as I got older, I realized, well, that's a stupid thing for someone to say and they're just insecure about themselves, I kind of adopted the attitude that I attained these things in spite of being a woman, not because I was a woman. So I think it's really important to teach kids you know, who are in underrepresented groups that they're far more competent and capable than sometimes they realize themselves and that there's always going to be people who try to take the wind out of their sails or suggest that perhaps they're less than, and that's not the case at all. It's actually the case where they're more than, like they continue to persist in the face of all this adversity. So so perhaps they are actually more qualified 
or at least the right people in the right place at the right time, providing a perspective and a voice that's going to like all the boats will rise as a result. What are you most proud of in what you've accomplished at Tish since you've arrived? Ooh, that's a really good question. What am I most proud of that I've accomplished? We've had a lot of new programs that have developed since since I came on board. I don't want to take credit for any one of those things. I would say the one thing that perhaps I've added is just a perspective and support for people who have really good ideas and sort of championing an entrepreneurial spirit, right? Encouraging people to innovate. So one of the things I say to people all the time when they think they have a crisis, I go, oh, is anything blowing up? Is anybody's life, limb, or eyesight in danger if we don't get an answer to this question right now? And they just kind of laugh and they go, okay, I, I understand the perspective now. So I've tried to be unflappable in that regard and just say, okay, we're going to get through this. Let's let's continue to drive on and hopefully achieve some positive change that's going to make difference in the life of a student or a faculty member or researcher who are all really, really principled. I mean, that's the best thing about this place where I work, just like the last one where I was work, the people deeply care about making positive change in the world. Do you believe that unflappable demeanor is what, you know, one of the many attributes that Army drove into you that's carried over well to Tish? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I learned pretty early on that being really emotional about things, there's a time and a place for that, right? And when people are in danger, they don't need to see their leader sort of freaking out. They need to see their leader like calm and confident. We're going to get through this together. I don't have all the answers, so I'm happy to get suggestions from other people, but we're a team. We can do this. And I try to bring that into every other endeavor that I do as well. In your observations of others, can you point to the top challenges a lot of leaders have in separating their emotions from their decision-making? What keeps them? What makes someone go, I want to build on your comment about people looking for calm, collected. You and I have both have met leaders that either fly off the handle or berate people or whatever the yeah. case may be, right? You, they can't delineate. They can't separate their emotions from their decision-making. What do you believe? Yeah. I mean, I think that? it's very much tied to ego, right? Where they see things, this is about me and this is about the things that matter to me and not necessarily like taking a step back and, and considering other people's perspectives. Does that answer your question? It does. It does. So talk about trends you've observed during this pandemic that you believe will have a profound impact on us on the other side of it. What do you think is going to stay with us? So it's funny. I think about one year ago, I mean, I think we're very close to the one year anniversary of the last day that I spent in my office. And I have a very hardworking boss who grew up in, you know, a very traditional work environment and wasn't necessarily the most comfortable person with technology and liked being in the office with all of the people around him able to quickly give answers to various questions that he had. And when it became evident that we were going to have to start sending people home and come up with an alternate way of communicating with them, there was a lot of apprehension. 
of could we do this? Are we going to be as successful as we were when we were all in the office, you know, holding hands and doing things together? And I said, well, we really don't have a choice. So, and it finally came down to the governor gave an order because even though the, the dean of the medical school suggested to my boss who was in a high risk category that maybe he should consider not coming into the office every day, he was determined like that's where he got his best work done and he really wanted to be there. And so I stayed so I could support that, uh, but we sent everybody else home. And then the governor gave the, the order that everyone was going to have to stay home for this period of time. And so we went home and we figured it out and we actually asked people what did they need to be successful and we tried to provide it in terms of resources. And there were some people who needed new work arrangements because they were dual career, they had tiny kids at home, they no longer had childcare. So, you know, a few of the people in our student program staff who are in that boat were really nervous, like what if am I going to lose my job because the only time I can have to work is between 8 p.m. and midnight because all the rest of the time I'm handling kids and you know trying to help my partner or whatever and everybody figured it out and I we started to communicate like yes the traditional work day is typically from nine to five but we recognize that that's not going to work for everybody in this situation so we got to be flexible we got to adapt and we got to prioritize so I think. We did a much better job, particularly at the last part of prioritizing and figuring out what are the most important things to get done and how do we help people who are really having to pivot. So, you know, one of the challenges with higher ed, present company excluded, is it's really not known for moving with a lot of speed and agility and adapting and in some ways, so on and so forth. So how do you believe higher ed needs to adapt in the post-pandemic world? You are exactly right with that. I will just tell you anecdotally, I taught this fall and teaching is not my full-time job. I honestly do it because it's the thing that excites me the most and why I like to get up in the morning and it helps me to be creative. And when we first sort of negotiated whether or not I, I would do any teaching, I made the case to my boss that Yes, it takes time from my typical day job, but it also will make me better at my day job, if that makes sense. It's this thing that just gives me so much energy and helps me to think creatively about problems. So I taught in the fall and I couldn't teach, you know, the way I normally did because I had some students out of the country that couldn't come back. I had students who were in and out of isolation. There was a request from the Tufts administration to offer a variety of things because so many students wanted to be back on campus and nobody wanted students to be stuck in their dorms doing all their classes online, especially, you know, we live in New England. So there's only going to be a couple of good months where you can do things outside and the rest of the time they're going to be stuck indoors. So I tried very hard to figure out how am I going to accommodate all those various constituencies. And I really reformulated a lot of things about the way I typically did my class. And this year I got the highest student evaluations I've ever gotten in like 12 years of teaching. Look at Um, you. It it flabbergasted me. I feel really guilty because... You know, like, I don't know that I, you know, you always wonder, do I deserve these? And I try not to believe, you know, those things that people say about you that much. 
what do you, what's the thing you might have said it to me? Like, don't read your own reviews. I can't remember what the actual quote is, but I adapted. Now I have peers who, you know, they've been given the same lecture every year in, in this certain class on this certain lesson. Like they have the whole thing written out in their long hand and they just stand up in front of the class with their, you know, they maybe used to have the overhead transparencies and they thought it was a big deal to transition to PowerPoint. So they tried to do that in a virtual setting. And I don't think that it was particularly, it doesn't translate well. You know, as you've had to transition your work into a virtual setting, like how do you make the same kind of impact that you would make if you were physically in the room but people are staring at a screen all day long. So thinking creatively about that, like I do feel like it made me a better teacher. It certainly made me more confident about when you get a curveball, how do you respond to it? And I think the people that were really reluctant and didn't want to change and didn't change and just went on Zoom and read their 70-minute manifesto or whatever with their PowerPoint slides probably didn't have the same sort of response that I did. So I'm genuinely curious, those ratings, like Mm -hmm. where do they go? Because I got to tell you, my impression is the students as the customers of the institution are often ignored at the expense of the, which which I got to tell you, tenure just screams status quo. Tenure says, you know, why should I do anything differently? I- I'm here for life. It's one of those life appointments, right? So where does the customer come in and the needs? And, you know, when you think of companies and organizations and how they're the better ones anywhere, becoming more customer obsessed, mm-hmm. you don't tend to think of higher ed as customer obsessed in terms of the needs of those students. It's really interesting that you use that language because there's a book called Academically Adrift that came out. I don't know, five or seven years ago that speaks to this. Like I personally do not see students as customers. I see them as products. So I mentioned before, you know, what was my legacy from being at West Point? I haven't changed that mindset. I believe when I go into a classroom and I am delivering material and helping to educate and inspire, hopefully students that that then they be you know they take a little part of me and go out into the world. So I see them as products. I feel like higher ed ought to be thinking more about what do their products do as opposed to, you know, I understand the business side of this and I'm certainly as a, you know, half of my responsibility is the administration and that includes the budget and understanding, you know, where does the money come from? And interestingly Tisch College, it's not we don't get tuition revenue. Uh, everything we have is generated by philanthropy and external grants. So I'm sensitive to making smart business decisions, but I'm also very sensitive to what will be the legacy of the institution based on the quality of teaching that students receive. So I'm not really sure what this question was to begin with before I kind of got up on this soapbox about that. But <laughs> I think bold. higher ed you're very passionate this- about your you're very passionate about yeah. your soapbox. I'll look, keep going. On. <laughs> right, right. Well, well, I think, you know, higher ed and Tom, I'll give a little plug for Tom Colditz's book Leadership Reckoning. 
higher ed has, has, I feel like a responsibility to society, certainly in the United States about contributing to strengthening democracy. So I really think we need to have a hard look at, at what that is comprised of and what we can do more effectively and efficiently. So one of the things from my research with Rich Lerner and really where he is a leader in this particular line of thinking is the concept of pathways and that no student, you know, students are a, are a combination of their, their genetic and biological makeup as well as their environmental experiences and those things interact with each other. And so people love to use the word snowflakes, right? In a really derogatory term, but people are like that. There are no two people that are exactly the same. Even when you have identical twins, those two kids are not necessarily going to see and perceive every single thing in the world exactly the same way. So they're going to have these unique experiences. Now we can tend to group people together in certain categories and match them up with the most impactful experiences to transform them. And that's where I think science needs to go to, to look at what's the best thing for the best kinds of people to, to reap the largest benefit as opposed to, Oh, we're just going to take all these people and kind of put them on the same, the same singular pathway and expect to have you know, some say that we made some kind of transformation for every single one of them, because I don't think that's the case. And you believe higher ed has a responsibility, but also an opportunity to shape those pathways? Yes, I absolutely do. So let's talk about, you know, Curvebenders is about future of work. Curvebenders are strategic relationships that beyond anything we accomplish, leave a indelible imprint on us. You've talked a lot about inspiring and educating, you know, kind of the next generation of leaders. Diane, can you think of one or two individuals who've had a profound impact on you and not just what you've accomplished, but really shaping the leader that you've become? Yeah. So I would say two people come immediately to mind and that's in part due to the fact I, I gave a class yesterday and I specifically mentioned these two people and how their example is really the foundation of everything who I am as a person. So the first one is Francis Hesselbein, who you know from MG100, who I met about 12 years ago when she was the chair for the study of leadership, distinguished chair for the study of leadership in my department at West Point. I think she was 93 at the time. And To this day, she was the most committed, the most spirited and involved chair that we've had. We've had like seven or eight of them now and some really big names, people you would know. And they're all delightful people. Lloyd Austin, I love him very much, but Francis is still the gold standard of people that have come through that door. She's 105 now and she still works. And there's a poem by George Bernard Shaw called The Splendid Torch. And there's a line in there where it's something like, use me up because life is not a brief candle, it's a splendid torch. And like we have these journeys. And so that has profoundly, profoundly influenced me. The two people I've cared most about in the pandemic are my mother and Frances Hesselbein, like making sure they get through it okay. Because, you know, her example, whenever I'm in a challenging situation or somebody's being nasty, I 
literally think to myself, what would Francis do? And that helps me to refine my response and my behavior. And the other person is my father. I may have mentioned this before, but my father in ninth grade education and was a bus driver for his entire life. And I spent a good portion of that kind of being ashamed and thinking that wasn't an important job. And my father wasn't a leader. And at his funeral, out of nowhere, a woman with Down syndrome came at the very end of the funeral, walked up to the front of the cemetery and read a letter to us about what an impact my father made on her, driving her to her job at Burger King every day, and how he always told her she did a great job and it, how it brightened her day and how much she would miss him. And so that taught me in that moment, first of all, I felt bad about thinking my dad wasn't a leader and was an important person because I realized what an impact he'd made on this one young woman's life. And I am certain that there were dozens of other people who felt this way. She just happened to be, however she found her way to my father's funeral, I still to this day have no idea. But understanding like you don't have to influence thousands of people or have a fancy title or any of those things. But, you know, each one of us has the ability to make a difference and make life better for somebody else. And so those people, if I if I look at all the different values in there of hard work and persistence and service and family and, you know, all the things that are important to me, I think are best encapsulated in like those two individuals. And those two individuals are admirable. My final question of you is, flip that coin. Are there some attributes you believe it takes for all of us to become curve benders in the lives of others? I mean, you just have to care enough. You just have to care. You have to look at your surroundings and ask yourself on a regular basis, like, who could use a hand? Like, who can I help? And not think about what's in it for you to do it. Just do it because it's it makes sense to do it. It'll it'll lift up that other person and just be satisfied with that. For our audience, if you join us late, you've been listening to Diane Ryan, Associate Dean for Programs and Administration, Tisch College at Tufts University. Diane, what's the best way for our audience to learn more about you and your work? They could visit the Tisch College website if you go to the Tufts edu just search through the schools and there's a tab for jonathan m tish college of civic life and a link to faculty thank you for being our guest on the curve vendors podcast well thank you so much for having me it's very humbling and it's always fun to talk to you By the way, three quick points, new season and a renewed commitment to our digital footprint, blog, newsletter, social media. We turn the show notes from these podcasts into more in-depth articles, so you can find those in our completely revamped new blog forthcoming at norgroup.com slash blog. Number two, we're completely revamping our newsletter to make them even more practical and relevant with both a free and a premium version. Check it out at norgroup.com slash newsletter. Lastly, we want to bring the content from these episodes to life. So whether it's a Twitter chat with a guest or live streaming through our Facebook and YouTube channels, or even more recently, a clubhouse audio conversation, check out our various social media channels with the hashtag CurveBenders for the latest update.
What a fantastic conversation with my friend and uh, incredibly accomplished uh, educator, uh, leadership expert, Diane Ryan of uh, Tisch College at Tufts University. So uh, these are your nor notes, nor summary notes. Hopefully, uh, you know, some action items you can immediately put to good use. So I got to tell you, I love her comment around work-life integration. Can you imagine being you know, all consuming in the military at place like West Point, where there's so much demand of you and still caring for a family. And what did she say? I have an incredible partner and I've just the, the, her husband and he knew what he was committing to. And I got to tell you, beside every leader of you know, competent, capable leader I've ever met next to them are two things. Inevitably, an amazing assistant, an amazing kind of right arm and an amazing spouse or significant other that really stabilizes their home life so they can show up and be their best. Uh, I just wrote a North forum about engagement and resilience. And for us to show up and be at our best, we, we all need that support. So, so that was uh, the work-life integration w- was really intelligent, really enjoyed that. Uh, love her comment about uh, you know, how army taught her to be bigger than herself. And she created, she had a set of, you know, a value set where Tufts was just a natural extension of that. Uh, love uh, her comment about unflappable. She's exactly right. People increasingly looking for leaders to be that duck, right? Under the water, you could be pedaling like nobody's business. Above water, calm, collected. And it goes back to, I I genuinely believe your ability to disengage your emotions from your decision-making is a superpower. And I've struggled with it for years, and I'm in awe of people that are that calm, collected, cool, under enormous amount of pressure, under really difficult circumstances. And I love her comment, right? Is anything blowing up? Is anybody's limbs or eyes or sight or body parts in danger? At a university, often that's not the case. So she learned that in the Army and listened to what she carried over from her military experience to now an educator. Students as products. Isn't that an interesting perspective? I've always thought students as customers of that higher ed her comment was, I see them as products, right? So I hope you'll join us. Uh, I'm, I'm so excited. Diane's going to be my guest uh, on our live stream today at noon Eastern uh, on LinkedIn, on YouTube, on Facebook, on Twitter. I hope you'll come join us and jump in with your questions. She is brilliant, retired Army colonel, uh, again, PhD in psychology and behavior. You, you're going to want to hear she said she had to reformat and she taught a class this fall. You're going to want to hear the, the topic of her course. So join me for Diane's uh, live stream today, noon Eastern. Number two, I take the show notes from these podcast interviews. We turn them into articles, blogs, uh, post them in our private online community called NOR Forum. So if you go to norgroup.com slash forum. Number three, I have some fabulous, fabulous guests coming up in our upcoming episodes, our upcoming podcasts. So I hope you'll subscribe uh, wherever you consume podcasts, subscribe to Curve Vendors, or if you just go to norgroup.com slash podcast, norgroup.com slash podcast. Uh, I have uh, just some really brilliant mind. Dennis Sadlowski, former CEO of Siemens Energy and Automation, Jeff Parker from Dartmouth, 
Michael Watkins, uh, phenomenal thinkers 50 on uh, you gaining traction, you accelerating your career transition. Uh, Subir Chowdhury uh, is uh, one of the world's most renowned experts on Six Sigma and Lean. So again, a lot of great folks joining us. I hope you'll make time to join us. Subscribe to wherever you consume podcast or norgroup.com slash podcast. I'm so grateful for all of our listeners on the Curve Vendors podcast. I'd love to hear from you with ideas, with suggestions, with guests you'd love to hear from at this intersection of future of work, strategic relationships, and nonlinear growth. You can simply email podcast at norgroup.com or follow us on various social media channels where I use the hashtag Curve Vendors to keep you posted on our latest progress. 